Humans are social beings. We learn and we grow in concert with other people. It's a team game. Welcome everyone to Culture by Design. I'm joined in this episode by Dr. Tony Delosio, who is, he's actually been a colleague of mine for several years, and he's a practitioner, but also a writer and a researcher that I have a great deal of respect for. He was trained as an organizational psychologist and has practiced in that field for over 30 years, serving hundreds, if not thousands of businesses across really the spectrum, not non-for-profit or schools, hospitals, NGOs, government agencies, military. I think you've worked across the spectrum, Tony. I have only because it, it kind of the, the work took me to those different places, but I'm really interested now, Tim, in working in sort of very mission-driven organizations. It's very exciting, like schools. Oh, well, yeah. Welcome to the podcast. So good to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here with you as well. Let me just share a little bit more. So he's been a professor in the MBA program at Georgia Tech's Scheller College of Business, teaching leadership and organizational change. In the early parts of his career, which began in education, he was an inner city high school principal. Isn't that amazing? An inner city high school principal where he advocated for disadvantaged youth. He received a PhD from the University of Connecticut in the field of organizational psychology and counseling psychology, where he received a fellowship for his research in leadership style and taught graduate courses in psychology. He went on to found and become the CEO of Charter Oak Consulting Group, which he has led for 30 years. That's amazing. Has it been that long? A long time, yeah. Way too long. I'm way, I'm way too old to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Although but, I'm just kind of learning how to really do things. We're just getting, you're just <laughs> learning. Now. Isn't that how it works though? I think so, unfortunately. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah, I know I'm in, uh, let's see, I think I'm I'm uh, 30 years into my MBA program, something like that. Yeah. Now, notably, Tony published recently a new book called The Journeyman Life. The Path to Being a Better Man. This is an amazing book. I had the opportunity to review the manuscript before it went to publication, and I was pretty stunned by it. I, you, do you know what, Tony? I got to say, it's a deep introspective. It's almost, it's a post-mortem on life where you turn around and you look at your life and you review what you've done and the level of candor and honesty that you, that you share in that book is astonishing. You don't pull any punches. No. <laughs> and some of the things that you say are not flattering about yourself, which makes it all the more powerful mm -hmm. and compelling. To me, it was a tutorial. It was a personal guide. Mm -hmm. As I read it, you can't help but be reflective and do a, a penetrating self-inventory as you're going along. So for me, you were an advisor and a confidant that took me through that and through your own vulnerability 
you drew me out. I thought it was a, an incredible journey. So what thank you. Let me begin. Thank let me begin with this. First of all, can you just give us a thumbnail sketch of your story, where you grew up, and maybe some stops along the way, just a little bit? Yeah, sure. Thank you. And thank you for that. I'm so happy to hear that the book landed on you the way it did. And that's really my was my hope in writing it to do that. Kind of lay myself on the table so that other people can understand better what the journey really is like yeah. for all of us, because we're all the same. We seem like we think that our stories are so unique and different and our, you know, but in reality, we as modern men in today's society have a lot that's the same about how we feel and deal with life and what we think is real and what's working and what isn't. And that's what I really wanted to write about. Yeah. The genesis of this book really was, is really the answer to your question about sort of where I came from. I grew up in a blue-collar town in a in Waterbury, Connecticut, which was then the brass city of the world. My father was a fireman, and you know we were, you know, we we did okay, but we were it was rough. My mom had two baby boys that died at birth mm. after I was born, and she became very psychologically ill because of that and other things, and was in and out of mental institutions while I was growing up, Tim. While you were young. Yeah. During your four During years. my, you know, four, five, yeah. eight, 10, 12, 15. She became obsessive compulsive neurotic, and it was a very extreme environment that I was raised in. And I, you know, I had to learn a lot of coping skills, but I had a lot of trauma, and I had a lot of... Uh, you know, challenges that came along with me like a ball and chain in my life that made life difficult for me to navigate. And that's really what I'm writing about in the book is that we all have that story. I mean, whatever our version of it is, we have it. And, you know, it's not so much that it happened to you, but how you deal with that. Now, I was fortunate in that I sort of escaped it. And I pushed myself very hard to excel because I wanted to be better than everything that had happened to me. My mother's psychiatrist back in the 50s told her, and then she told me that I was going to be crazy like her. And so wow. I decided I wanted to, which is a pretty awful thing to say to a young kid. Yeah, it is. But I decided I was going to try to get ahead of that curve. So that's why I ultimately went out for my PhD in psychology. Yeah, I was going to say that's ironic. <laughs> Yeah. But, yeah, that's amazing. Anyway, I guess he assumed that through acquired socialization it was going to happen to you, but yeah. he wasn't acknowledging your agency. Exactly. So it was pretty scary, you know, situation, the whole thing. And, you know, so this book is when I talk about it as the journey, you know, the not so perfect path to a life well lived, is how do you get on the other side of that? Because we all have our we all have our past, we all have the a core sort of dynamic or beliefs that we grew up with that then impact the way that we behave and the decisions we make, how we relate to people. And for a man, that looks more similar than not. For example, we tend to be more covertly depressed. We tend to act out. We tend to be more alcoholics or rageaholics or addicted to things. 
these are things that the masculine psyche exhibits, you know, because of the core wound that we have as men, which is very early, Tim, when we learn that it's not okay to be in touch with your feelings. It's not okay to have a feeling. And we get disassociated with ourselves. And that creates some of this journey that I'm talking about. And that happened to me. So we learn not to feel. We learn not to feel. And then you can imagine as you suppress those feelings, they're still inside of you. That trauma is still inside of you. And it comes out in all these other ways because we don't really talk about things. We don't really address things relationally. We tend to be walled off and hold things into ourselves. Yet in reality, we're not fooling anyone. Mm -hmm. That's really creating some real challenge for us in our lives. And I experienced that big time. Now I was able to maneuver for all that through all that. And I was able to, you know, push myself and I got lucky and, you know, was able to have incredible experiences, but I think it took its toll. I mean, I've been through two cancers now, one, a bladder cancer that was really devastating. And I think you probably remember me just on the back end of that. And then more mm-hmm. recently, I had, a, I had a form of leukemia and I'm just getting on the other end of that, which is Amazing. And I think a lot of those illnesses, I can almost trace to some of the trauma that I I felt in my life. Really? Do you think there's a direct correlation? I think so. Because I know that my story is not uncommon, that people, when they have serious trauma or hurt or pain, a lot of times it manifests in some kind of illness that's sort of sitting down in there, you know? Yeah. So the journeyman life is that story, but I wanted to write a book that wasn't only about, I wasn't, you know, I didn't want to write a book about me. I wanted to write a book about the journey that we take and sort of, you know, what thematically we could learn about that. And so that's why it gets into sort of the inner life of a man and then how that manifests externally. You use your experience as a roadmap for others. Yeah, exactly. We can follow the same journey line, so to speak. That's right? right. That's exactly right. Because ultimately, the way to improve yourself is by putting up that mirror and be and self-reflecting and saying, how am I really coming across in life? Do I really see myself accurately? And I don't think you really improve or grow or change unless you everything starts with self-awareness. Yeah. And if you don't have that, you don't have anything. Tony, uh, that reminds me, one of the things that I say to clients all the time is we talk about coachability. And I say coachability is a function of two things. Number one, self awareness. Mm-hmm. Number two, willingness. Yeah. It's the intersection of those two things. And the journey that you talk about is largely a journey of increasing those two things your self awareness on the one hand and your willingness on the other. Totally. And if those two things don't increase, you're not going anywhere. Totally. You're stuck. Totally. I think that's beautiful. I love that. And I think. Easier said than done, because it's hard to do those two things. Oh, yeah. You know, I made a decision that I was going to go for it. You know, and I talk about that in the book. You'll remember, I I said, yeah, I'm going to take myself on. Yeah. And everybody has to, I call it kind of bringing yourself to the doorstep of change. It's like, well, I like the way that you frame that. Just, I'm going to take myself on. Yeah. Say more about that. Yeah. Was that a process for you? Was that a, did something trigger that? How did you come to cross that threshold where you said, okay, I'm ready? Yeah. Well, you know, I think 
I mean, I, there probably was, and it, but it was probably a number of things, Tim. It wasn't one thing. It was kind of piled up. Yeah. But I think when you, you know, if you're really conscious about what's happening to you in life and you come to these thresholds or crucibles and you start seeing that the same thing is happening over and over again, and it's kind of like wherever you go, there you are, then you realize that you're the central figure in this, in this experience. And until you, you look at yourself, nothing's going to change. So I'd say four or five years ago when I decided to write this book, I mean, one way to really take yourself on is by writing a book and putting it, you know, and putting it out into the public sector yeah. so that everybody knows everything. And then the question is, are you going to actually take yourself on to actually do the things? Like right now, after I wrote the book, somebody in an interview I did recently, somebody said, what have you learned since you wrote the book? Which I thought was a great question. Yeah. And what I learned was more about what it really means to do the things that I write about in the book. Because it's easy to write about that stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not easy, but it's easier than actually doing it. It's actually, yeah, it's easier than doing it. Exactly. And now, and now I decided to do it and I'm doing it. And so in the last, the book came out in January and the last four months, honestly, at age 74 have been the most growth I've had my whole life. And I'm not just no saying, kidding. like I'm really taking myself on internally and I'm gaining all kinds of awareness about really what's been operating for me and how I can change. So Tony, to that point, so I have a, I have a friend that's been a psychotherapist for, I don't know, over 30 years. Mm -hmm. And he said, Tim, here's the reality. He said, I've worked with a lot of people, right? It's been over 30 years. And he said, here's the pattern. People change at the precipice, mm. if at all. Yeah, That's the empirical pattern. So I think it takes us back to the theory of cognitive dissonance. Yeah. So we do things in our lives and we're not happy about it. We don't like the consequences. The consequences sting. The consequences are bitter. Mm -hmm. And we experience pain and suffering. And every time that happens, we arrive at another decision point. And it seems to me, if you go back to the entire research literature on cognitive dissonance, beginning with Leon Festinger, but it's so fundamental. So we arrive at another decision point. And the decision is, do we change or do we change our belief about needing to change? But right. those are really the only two choices that you have. That's right. So it's change or change your belief about needing to change. Now, which one's easier? Well, if I change my belief about needing to change, I'm good to go. Yeah. And so I can self-medicate in many, many different ways to rationalize and justify and not change. And then I keep going in the same mode, or I can do, as you say, I can take myself on. But in my own life, I have found that this is true, that I come to, to juncture after juncture mm -hmm. where I have to ask myself that same question, do I change or do I change my belief about needing to change? But it, it's one or the other. There's not a third option. It's That's one right. or the other. And we go from juncture to juncture to juncture mm -hmm. in life, and we make decisions and we behave and then we generate consequences. Decisions are like sticks. You pick up the one end and you pick up the other, and the other end are the consequences, and you don't get to deny the consequences of your decisions. So you get to live with them, 
But what's interesting to me is that even when we're swimming in pain mm. and the negative consequences of our decisions and, and what we do, we seem to have an incredible ability for denial, mm -hmm. for self-justification, for rationalization, and to continue in that mode. We can absorb a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we seem to persist often in doing that. And so coming back to your story, Tony, I'm your story is empowering and liberating to the rest of us. I think a lot of people are asking, how do you arrive? How do you gather yourself? to take yourself on and then persist in that effort without regressing to the mean, yeah. without reverting, without snapping back, sliding back, right? Which is, mm -hmm. which is the pattern. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So how did yeah, you get to that really point? there's, there's sort of two major thing and sort of events. One of them, it's kind of like when a rocket ship gets going, it has to have enough thrust to get through gravity yeah. that's kind of part a yeah and then part b is then the sustenance beyond that which is what you're talking about so the first part is i mean they're both really hard in fact most people spend more of their time trying to muster up enough to actually bust through gravity and you know andrew huberman who's a stanford neuroscientist who i really study quite a bit with and and he he talks about it as getting yourself to the doorstep of change is about having enough urgent a sense of urgency mm -hmm. and a sense of focus so you need you need that crucible experience that actually makes you stand up straight and say okay i have no other choice like for example you're an alcoholic and you're losing your family or you're you're experiencing your second cancer or whatever it is and the question is is it enough to get you to say okay i'm going to pay attention I'm going to ask for feedback. I'm going to start doing some things differently. And maybe that gets you through that gravity, Tim. Mm -hmm. That's hard enough. You know, and the reason why people make that other choice is because change is really hard. There's no question about that. My first book was called Change the Way You Change that I wrote with Kendall Lyman, my partner, business partner. And we talk about how difficult it is to change there. But sometimes we, a la Alan Deutschman, we, we either change or we die. And that's really sort of when people maybe do make that change. But really, the more the more difficult part is the second part that you talk about, which is the part where we we have to sustain the change, and that's not yeah, as that's, it's not no, as sexy as the busting through. Yeah. So, but I guess that's that may be the harder point because the pattern that I observe, Tony, is that urgency is a catalyst. Mm, yes. Seldom a sustainer. That's right. That's right. It gets you started. Yeah. But it doesn't keep you going. I mean, look at like clinical studies. For example, I, I'm thinking of one clinical study with a group of coronary, you know, patients that all had coronary bypass surgery. Now, if anything could have the power to concentrate the mind, it would be that. And so this cohort of patients, they have surgery and they survive and they sit down with their physicians and their physicians say, hey, we need to have a conversation. If you don't change your lifestyle, you're not gonna be around. So you need to change your lifestyle in terms of diet and exercise. So then they track them, right? So it's a longitudinal study. Mm -hmm. Well, 
how many of them sustain, what percentage of the cohort sustains changes in lifestyle? 10%. And yet they just went through coronary bypass surgery. Right. So it doesn't seem to be anything that could give you a greater sense of urgency. So it is this tremendous catalyst, but I don't see it as a sustainer. Yeah. So how do you break through the atmosphere, so to speak, to continue the analogy? Right. Yeah, we've got some momentum. We've we're coming through gravity, but oh, now what? Yeah. Well, one of the things I talk about in the book and what I'm actually focused on right now is creating men's groups to actually create a support system for that change, much like you would do, Tim, in Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. Where because you really have to, it's sort of like you're an addict. It's sort of like, you know, I mean, AA is one of the most successful change platforms that we know of in modern no question. Times. And if you think about the model, that's the model we need. So what I'm doing is asking men who want to change to be a part of a network where they actually show up and are now together supporting each other and also going public with, you know, like, for example, I wrote this book. I talk about to my family, to my wife, to my friends, what I'm trying to do Yeah. so that it's no secret. And I have to live that. I have to role model that. And so when you do that, you consistently increase your probability for sustenance. Mm -hmm. So in the book, I write about, it's sort of like the old Pac-Man game, Tim, where you you just keep getting more power. Well, what are the things that you can do to pile on that would get you more power? And that's really what it's about. You have to keep, you have to set good goals. You have to have accountability, a cadence of accountability. You have to, you have to uh, measure success. You Mm -hmm. have to, you have to build a network. You have to, have accountability meetings. I mean, all of the things that all we of all those know things. about, yeah. I mean, they're easier said than done, but if you do them, you have you raise your probability of success enormously. You One of the most support. important things you could do is like with your significant other who knows you the best is to put it on the table and just make it be part of the regular conversation and say, I am doing this and I need your help to do this. And then you start systematically taking yourself on. Yeah, And that's what I'm doing. I mean, this morning, I had a session with my therapist and we uncovered something that was really, really exciting. And I already had a conversation with my wife, Teresa, about how I want to work on that and how she can help me. That's an example of what I'm talking about. Yeah. The support, the accountability, the sources of renewal. That's right. You're not going to, so basically, Tony, you're not going to go do it by yourself. Exactly. In isolation, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, humans are social beings. We learn and we grow in concert with other people. Right. It's a team game. It is. Yeah, it really is. That's fantastic. We want, you know, as men, we like being independent. We like being walled off. It feels more secure. It feels stronger, more masculine. But in reality, it's not the perfect path at all. It's the most imperfect path. Yeah. You can only be so stoic. Exactly. Yes. It's really true. Exactly. That's really true. That's fantastic. Well, I would, um, yeah, I would recommend this book to our listeners. It is a different kind of experience that, Tony, that you take us on. And I appreciate, as I said, when I started reading it, my eyes opened wide and I looked up and I said, oh, this is a different kind of journey. And uh, Tony is, he is putting himself on the table for analysis and he's willing to bear scrutiny here. Well, he's actually sharing 
that so very unusual but extremely helpful to all of us so thank you for that yeah yeah pretty amazing. and then to segue really then you know both you do tim and i do work with leaders of enterprise and schools and you know and then the question becomes how because they're in, under such great scrutiny they live their lives so independently then their ability to change and grow becomes imminently important and we see this in all aspects of our leadership in all aspects of government and industry and education and whatever so you know i can't help but think how important that is our world leaders to be able to you know be on that path as well yeah well it's a good point because a leader by definition has scalable influence exactly so whoever you are you're going to be magnified yeah exactly and we're going to put you under the lamp and so whatever you're modeling reverberates for good or for ill yeah you're a cultural architect whether you like it or not it's not a role you can abdicate beautiful so what are you going to do and as you say tony your ability to change your ability to improve has scalable impact so what have you learned about that do you have any yeah. well there was a seminal, yeah there was a seminal story that i experienced it had to be seven or eight years ago now maybe even longer i want to tell you that story and get to the punchline which is exactly where we are right now so if you remember there was a time when newspapers were going through a tremendous transformation because advertising was going to the internet. Yeah. And one of the major newspapers in a major city in the United States became a client of mine as they realized that in order for them to continue their 100-year history as a newspaper in the form that it was, they needed to cut their budget from about a billion dollars down to about 300 million. Now think about that. Wow. Two thirds. And so I was hired to sort of run that change effort and um, brought a team in to do that. There was a fellow by the name of John who was the CEO and publisher who I didn't know very well. And he was a big guy, very strong leader. He had been there for 20 years. He had basically assembled the whole organization. And there were a couple of thousand people along with that billion dollar budget. And I remember one day early on in the engagement where I was sitting in the war room with a couple of the consultants I was working with. We were trying to figure some things out. And John pulled open the door and he looked at me and he pointed at me and he said, you come with me. And I didn't know him very well at that point. And I, I thought, I knew that I had pushed him a little hard in a team meeting that we had had with his executive team. And I wondered if he got really annoyed by me. So I followed him rather sheepishly back into his office and he asked me to sit down. And he looked at me and I was ready to kind of pack my bags because I thought I had kind of ticked them off. Yeah. And he said to me, I need your help. He said, I can't do this. I can't dismantle this thing that I love so much. And we talked about that and decide, he asked me if I would work with him during the whole change process personally. And I did for the next year while we were doing a lot of the organizational change. Very infrequently did we ever talk about the real work. We mostly talked about his personal journey and his ability to change. And the lesson that I learned from that, Tim, was that until the leader changes, nothing changes. You cannot lead other people 
at a higher level than you're leading yourself. Yeah. And that was never so poignant to me. I had read about that in my graduate studies, but I never had really felt it so strongly as in that. And the organization pulled it off when he pulled off his own change. No kidding. When did he come to that conclusion? Did he know that early? No, he didn't. I think it came through the, you know, the personal explanation of what he was feeling, what he was thinking, and just it sort of was more of an iterative process. So he hit a wall somewhere. He hit a wall, and I think he realized there was nowhere to go. But he, you know, it was such a stark imperative. I mean, think about, you know, the sense of urgency around that. Yeah. You have to do this, or you basically, you're gone. And this is where people don't understand the connection between strategy mm. and leadership behavior. Exactly. And we kind of slough it off because you're going in as a strategy consultant. Right. But then he pulls you in and you pivot from being a strategy consultant to being a coach. That's right. That's at a right. personal level. That's right. Because he is that scalable leader. I think it was... That reminds me, Tony, I think it was Emerson who said that every organization is the lengthened shadow mm. of one individual. Wow. And now that may, that may be a little bit of an oversimplification, right? Depending on the context, but in a corporation, for example, where you do have a CEO, there's a lot of truth to that. That organization becomes the lengthened shadow of that person. And so if you want to find the source of leverage, that's it. And so the fact that you were able to help that gentleman navigate the change himself, because if he were to be a casualty, what happens to the enterprise? Exactly. You know, that's I just, an amazing just other, story. Yeah, absolutely. And just one other sort of piece of that to stay with the shadow metaphor each of us have a brilliance and gift that we have in the world but we also have a shadow side to that and if we're living in that shadow and that shadow is not isn't actually you're not actually aware of that shadow then the organization's culture starts to sort of mirror that shadow right. more than it does mirror the brilliance. Right. So it necessitates a leader to go through that uh, crucible moment to actually open him or herself up to be able to be authentic and honest and take, again, take themselves on. Yeah. And that's when things really start to happen in creating a culture of transparency. And when they do, when they embrace that, it really accelerates, doesn't it? Totally. And that's exactly what happened in this case, you know? And that's the exhilarating part. That's the exhilarating part. Yeah. But I mean, think about how hard that is. Yeah. I had another project I was working on. It was a utility down in Florida. It was a municipal utility. It was a very successful billion dollar utility that was being challenged by, you know, some of the regulate deregulation. And Walt was the CEO. He, he had played tackle for Florida State. He was about six, seven, weighed about two, eight, I mean, he was just brilliant and strong. And the organization didn't really, it really didn't know why it needed to change because it was very successful, but it was going to get blown out of the water by some of its competitors. And he knew that. And I remember being in a meeting with the executive team and Walt toward the beginning of the change effort. 
And he looked out in the audience and said, I want you to give me feedback. I want you to give me feedback about what I'm doing or not doing. That's really and he's great. saying this publicly. He's saying this right in front of his <laughs> top 50 people. Wow. And nobody said a word for 10 minutes. And it was until he kept on saying it over and over again. And eventually people started, started, started talking and he listened and he modeled what we're talking about. And then little by little, this happened over six months, the organization's leaders started to do the same thing down in their organization. Yeah. And it laid the foundation for incredible change in that organization. And they survived. Yeah. It's another example. Led by example. Well, it goes back to the principle that you expressed, said a different way. We could say leaders, organizations don't outperform their leaders, they reflect them. Exactly. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are amazing case studies. Exactly. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Any other examples that you'd like to give? Yeah, well, I wanted to tell you, you know, one of the most important jobs of a leader is to make decisions and to engage people and bring them bring them on so that the decision not only can be the best decision that the organization needs to make, but people really are on board about that decision. And I, I wanted to tell a story about some things I've learned about decision-making. And the story I want to tell you is more of a personal story, but it kind of gets to the punchline. So actually, it was about 20 years ago that my wife and I were living in Connecticut and we had moved from Atlanta, Georgia here up to Connecticut, and we were looking for a home. And it was in the countryside. And, you know, some of the homes up there, you know, we were looking for sort of like a colonial, you know, we had this vision of a home on a hill that was old and had a beautiful view. And turns out that in that part of Connecticut, those homes were available, but they were very expensive and they were beyond our budget. Mm -hmm. We found one that we loved and it was, our budget was about $300,000 at that point to buy a home. Yeah. Which back then was, you know, okay, but it wasn't great. The home was on the market for 1.6 million. And I said to my wife, look, this is a great house, but we're, you know, we, this is, we're just not going to happen. And she said, no, let's just keep steadfast on our vision. Long story short, we bought the house for $360,000. The way it happened was that the owners decided to break the 40 acres up into a couple of parcels. And the parcel that we bought the home on with the home was worth that amount of money. Ah. About five years later, we bought the rest of the land and we actually got the home. Now, the example, <laughs> that was an incredible example for me, because I think for many of us, the sort of masculine way of thinking about something like this would be a very straight-lined approach. But my wife took a very different approach, which was more of a sort of intuitive, open sort of approach to possibility, Tim, okay. to possibility. Yeah. And if you think about most decisions that are made in organizations, they tend to be more, I would say, black and white, you know, data-based, fact-based, well, all which is great. But it doesn't leave open the possibility of intuition and change. And I learned about this, the sort of the nomenclature for this, in a study that I found from a Harvard Business Review article by um, John Hammond, who wrote a classic business Harvard Business Review article called The Hidden Traps in Decision Making. Do you know that one, Tim? I don't know that I've read that one. 
Yeah. And oh, it talks about decision heuristics, okay. which was a term that was invented by Daniel Kahneman, who, of course, won of the course. Nobel Prize yeah. for his research and wrote a best national bestselling book called Fast and Slow Thinking. Yeah, exactly. And in that book, he describes the difference between advocacy decision-making and inquiry decision-making. Now, advocacy decision-making is where you get data and you make up your mind, or oftentimes you have framed the problem in your mind based on your own preconceived notion. And then you go into the problem solving with other people, but trying to prove your point. Mm -hmm. You already have the the confirmation bias inside of you. Exactly. That's one of the heuristics. Inquiry decision-making is where you have all that data, but you go into it wanting to open it up to the exploration of other people. Now, the way this intersects with what we've been talking about in in the previous part of this is that it takes a pretty big person to be an open person and not need to be your way. Mm -hmm. It turns out that inquiry decision-making is infinitely more successful in getting to better outcomes, in getting to more creative outcomes and better strategies, and also getting more engagement of the key people that you need to have at the table to be able to actually implement the decision. And I thought that that was fascinating. And it gets back again to the notion of, are you a big enough individual to be able to let go and give people a chance to sort of speak into and bring their brilliance Mm -hmm. to the equation? Well, and what does big mean? Right, big, big enough. Yeah, meaning big, big enough big to be means, able to open yourself big, up to. Yeah, it means uh, humility. It humility, means exactly. Letting go of your ego defense mechanisms. Exactly. It means soliciting feedback. It means holding your opinions lightly. Exactly. At least for a good long time, as you're soliciting feedback, input, you're inviting a collaborative process. Yes. That is unusual. That, <laughs> well, you, do you know what? It's interesting because it runs contrary to the imperial model of leadership. Mm-hmm, that's right. That many of us have been taught. Yes. And with that model, we are taught that a leader is the oracle. Mm-hmm. The leader is the repository of answers. Come to me, I'll give you the answer and dispatch you. But it seems... Tony, I think we can see this, that the more dynamic the environment is in which you're trying to work and lead, the more antique and antiquated and obsolete that model becomes because you simply do not have the equipment to process the environment inside the organization, outside the organization, what Peter Drucker called the meaningful outside to be able to process, to synthesize, to distill, to make decisions. You you can't do it. There's no way you can do it. Totally. So listening to you tell that story makes me think that we have a lot, as much as we have to learn as we move further into the 2020s, many of us have a lot to unlearn so that we can be successful in decision-making in particular. Totally. Especially as you think about, you know, the machine age, the age of the smart machine. Yeah coming up because most of the sort of things that were 
differentiators in the marketplace become commodities. And what really makes the difference is one's ability to be a leader and to build a team and to actually bring their brilliance to the table. That's how we actually will compete in the future. That's right. The other thing that comes to mind though, Tony, is that in order to embrace that decision-making model in this era of big data Mm -hmm. and AI and machine learning, et cetera, is that we have to be careful not to over-rely on quantitative data. Exactly. And so what about the rich qualitative data, the impressionistic data, the intuition? What if someone comes to you and says, this is what my gut's telling me. These are what my instincts are telling me, but Mm -hmm. I can't bring the data and the logic Mm -hmm. that you would normally want, the level of rigor that you would normally want based on quantitative analysis. So then we would be tempted to dismiss that, right, Tony? Exactly. What happened is you went and you looked at the house and it was one point whatever million. And you said, there's the data. The data set says no, end of analysis. Conversation, yeah. But your wife's saying, hang on a second, hang on a second. That's not the end of the analysis. If you're open Mm -hmm. to new lines of thinking and some possibilities, right? And so we have to think creatively. It gets creative, it gets qualitative, it gets intuitive. We've got to bring that in. And then we combine it all and it might take us in a different direction. You know, it's hard to say, but all of this indicts me to some extent. (laughs) Because I can think of instances where I have not done that well. I just haven't, and I've closed myself off to information sources and possibilities, and I have to be honest about that. Yeah, yeah, thank you for sharing that. In fact, we did, um, I worked with Dave Hoffman, who's a professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Many times we, I think probably, I would say about a hundred times, we did this experiment with executives who were coming through the uh, UNC Executive Ed Center, you know, top leaders. And we would put them in groups, some advocacy groups and some inquiry groups. One group we'd say, figure out, you know, come to a conclusion yourself and then go into the group and see if you can come to the best answer. The inquiry groups, we would say, don't come to a conclusion yourself, but figure it out as a group. And the inquiry groups outperform the advocacy groups by like 90 to 10 got the right answer versus the advocacy groups because they shut down the thinking. Yeah. As soon as the leader says X, everybody else shuts their brain down Yeah. and says, okay, how can I support that? So we don't get the benefit of- We don't get the benefit of- Anything the more. They're, brilliant. they're shut down. The people in the room. It's an echo chamber after that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it all kind of brings this full circle, Tim, back to where we started, which is You know, I'm seeing now the intersection at this point in my life after writing the journeyman book, I'm seeing the intersection of all that work that I had done. And certainly I know you have done in the leadership arena that how critical that personal work is that we're talking about, because that personal work and taking yourself on 
is where you start to open up to new ways of thinking, doing, and engaging relationally with people in meaningful ways that create psychological safety, something that you have researched quite a bit, where emotional intelligence live, another piece where you've spent a lot of time in your thinking and development. These are really important things that happen when you take yourself on and are able to actually look at yourself in the kinds of ways that we're talking about. And then it opens up a whole nother world. It really does. Tony, I can't thank you enough for the rich conversation, but more importantly, for the work that you've done, for the contribution that you've made for all of us, both personally and then organizationally. And um, if there is a theme here, it's, I'll just repeat those words, take yourself on. Any final thoughts? Well, it's hard work. And, you know, it's hard work, but it's sort of like, what's it worth? Like, like what's the, what's at stake? Yeah. And what's at stake is your family, your business associates, your community, your church, your school, your society, our world. There's so many critical things happening in our world now that we need real leadership and that the best way to begin that is to change yourself from the inside out. That's how change really happens. Yeah. Beautiful. Tony, thanks again for joining you, us Jim. for this episode. So good to have you. So good to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on the Culture by Design podcast. Be sure to subscribe and listen to new episodes every week. And if you'd like to see more of the work we're doing, go to leaderfactor.com.